Oh, Agent Starling, you think you can dissect me with this blunt little tool? No. I, I thought that your knowledge... You're so ambitious, aren't you? You know what you look like to me with your good bag and your cheap shoes? You look like a rube. A well-scrubbed, hustling rube with a little taste. Good nutrition's given you some length of bone, but you're not more than one generation from poor wire trash, are you, Agent Starling? And that accent you've tried so desperately to shed, pure West Virginia. What is your father to you? Is he a coal miner? Does he stink of the lamb? You know how quickly the boys found you. All those tedious, sticky fumblings in the backseats of cars while you could only dream of getting out, getting anywhere, getting all the way to the end. See a lot, Doctor. But are you strong enough to point that high-powered perception at yourself? What about it? Why don't you why don't you look at yourself and write down what you see? Or maybe you're afraid to. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. You fly back to school now, little Starling. Welcome to episode 35 of the Monday Morning Critic. Today we have a new segment. The segment is titled... Breaking Down. Breaking Down is a segment which I will be dissecting movies with Doug Hutchison. You know him from The Green Mile. You know him from Lost. You know him from about 10 million other things. He's a phenomenal actor. And one of the many things he does really well is play a villain. And the very first movie Doug and I are going to dissect um, on this segment. And it will be a bi-weekly, maybe tri-weekly segment. Um, but I'm really looking forward to it. Without further ado, this is Breaking Down, and please welcome back Doug Hutchison. Doug Hutchison. Doug, how are you today? Hey, Derek, I'm good, man. I'm really excited about doing this with you. Yeah, I think you and I are going to put together a pretty good segment here. And, and our first movie that we're going to go right into is the 1991 release, Silence of the Lambs, directed by Jonathan Demme, who unfortunately passed away this past April. Just to get original feedback from you, Doug, what are your thoughts on this movie just off this, on, on the surface? Oh, boy. Where do I begin? <laughs> Um, well, when I first saw this movie, um, and saw Anthony Hopkins performance of Hannibal Lecter, I believe it was one of the most impeccable examples of stillness in an actor and in a portrayal that I've ever seen. And he draws you in with nothing but stillness. And I was so compelled by that because um, I 
I believe that's the foundation of like uh, uh, amazing performances is this stillness quality. And my goodness, he just um, em- embraced it. And in in the hands of a of a less capable actor, I think Hannibal Lecter could have been almost ridiculous in a way, like kind of this crazy madman or something, you know. And there you see Hopkins in the very first scene um, uh, with his hands behind his back and speaking very quietly and articulately. And it just draws you in. And his relationship with... um, the Jodie Foster's character, Clarice, is really the heartbeat of the movie. And I think that um, that's probably what kind of set it aside, or I'm, I'm sorry, set it um, ahead of itself in a way, because I don't think any other horror-slash-thriller movie was um, doing anything like that, you know, at that point in time. And so it wasn't just a movie about a serial killer. It wasn't just a movie about um, horror. It was a relationship movie, almost in a really weird way, mm. a love a love story. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and you mentioned if it was anybody else but Anthony Hopkins, it could have been, you know, disastrous. And I completely agree. And the two names that I kept reading, doing my research for this, were Gene Hackman and Sean Connery, who I cannot imagine being Hannibal Lecter in any way, shape, or form. Oh my gosh, are you serious? Yeah, I, I, Gene Hackman bought the movie, he wa- he bought the rights, he wanted to play um, Hannibal Lecter, his daughter talked him out of it, Sean Connery passed on it. Uh, I cannot picture those, although they're phenomenal actors, this was Anthony Hopkins' role in the same way that no other person could have played Percy Whitmore the way you played him. I mean, it was just... It was it was a it was a clinic, it was a clinic in how to play a character that no one else could have done, and and I mean both of those sentiments. Oh, thank you. I I, I mean, you, you're right about Hopkins. He, um, I, I think there are just some roles that you're born to play, mm. and you know what's so cool about it too is that um, I heard that up to that point. I mean, I think Hopkins was, what, like 52 or 53 or something when he played that role. And I remember reading an interview with him, and he, all the way up to that point, I mean, he was he was doing all right. He was making some movies and, you know, guest starring and, and doing a lot of stage. But he said it was so frustrating because he would drive up uh, Sunset Boulevard and look up at all of these billboards of these actors and in these movies and being nominated for Oscars. And he was just like, when, when, when is it going to be my turn? <laughs> you know, I've been waiting for so long. And sometimes you have to wait because that role that you were born to play, when the stars align themselves, well, there you are. You're standing in it, yep. and um, and he certainly did uh, stand in it. Wow! So, Big Doug, time. so Doug, let me. This is a, my next question is completely something I cannot answer, and something you can answer. 
as far as preparation for the role, he never spoke with with Foster beforehand. You know, as far as how how he's going to approach the role. Um, you know, he patterned after a friend that never blinks. You know, he's, Hannibal Lecter doesn't blink all that much. And when he when he mocks her southern accent in the beginning of the movie, she was not expecting that. And her reaction is like, "Is he like making fun of me as an actress right now?" And there's just yeah, there's just this you know the slurping sound he makes. You know that was all improvised. And I got to tell you, for him that worked wonders because the movie takes away five Academy Awards. Whereas Jared like Jared Leto by comparison, Jared Leto who played the Joker in a recent you know comic book movie was doing just like weird shit, like yelling out in a restaurant for no reason to see which laugh and which yell got the most reaction from patrons. Just weird stuff. Whereas Mm -hmm. Anthony Hopkins was doing something to harness the craft, not trying to make Jodie Foster, you know, show her up, but also trying to improve upon his iconic role. What is your take on, A, what it takes to be, you know, what you have to do to get to that level of being that kind of character and I guess the second part of that is, you know, what is for show and what is actually something that people need to do to harness themselves? Well, good questions. Um, I, you know, I think I think it's all in intention. Um, I, if his intention was to engage, which he did brilliantly uh not only jody foster in the moment first of all i didn't know this by the way uh, great research because i had no idea that those moments were improvised by hopkins that that impresses me even more yeah <laughs> about his you. performance um but i i think if it's not gratuitous and not to to throw your fellow actor off or to shine the light on yourself, but to add to the the ambience of the scene and the character and the role and the re- relationships, then it's you know uh, anything goes. And I, I remember um, uh, I remember a moment I did a movie called Bait with Jamie Fox and there was this interrogation scene where I had him tied to a chair. And um, Antoine Fuqua, the director, pulled me aside at one point and he just said, listen, he said, this is Jamie's first dramatic sort of, well, it was sort of a drama comedy, but it was his first foray into making movies off of the Jamie Foxx show. He said he's never made movies before and I need you to engage him. I need you to pull him, pull him in, reel him in. And I didn't know what Fuqua meant at the time, but as the scene unraveled, I started realizing like that Jamie wasn't really listening to me and he wasn't really looking at me. And it started as, as my character and as my character would, it started to piss me off. <laughs> and the more it pissed me off, the more I, the, 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 ste- the steam roller started um, uh, revving up. And then eventually I just, at one point in time, uh, unscripted, 
ran up to him, grabbed his face, looked him directly in the eyes, and made him look at me. Now, he wasn't expecting that, and it shocked him and scared him, and they kept it. They kept it in the final edit because it worked. What worked about it was not my brilliance in the moment, but that um, Fuqua gave me the liberty to draw Fox in by going off script. And so from that point on, the scene started to work because he was suddenly there with me. And so... I think there are moments in 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 movies where that that's appropriate, where um, as long as it's you know done in honor of trying to you know engage another actor to get the the script off the ground, the movie off the ground. Yeah, and it's not just a, it's not just about showmanship. You know what I mean? Right. Because people people can see through that if it's about showmanship, like. It's not, you know, it's not genuine. Yeah, and obviously we're talking about the 1991 um, movie Silence of the Lambs, and I can't believe that this movie is 26 years old. I just cannot get it through my head. I don't know how you feel about that, Doug. I just, I feel like I've seen this. Yeah, I just can't get over it. Yeah, it seems like yesterday. Went to go see it, you know. I know. Time flies, my friend. Yeah, and it was a book by Thomas Harris who wanted no creative control. He said, you know, you he said to Jonathan Demi, you do what you have to do. And when they it was nominated for I want to say five it, it, actually sorry, it won five Academy Awards, best actor, best actress, best director, you know, writing, best picture, and he sent them all a box of wine, which was a a really classy move on his part. Um so my I guess my question was to it, was it was it was it Chianti? <laughs> <laughs> I gotta believe it. I gotta believe it. I, I gotta believe it could have been. <laughs> um, the movie, the movie, the movie gets a million votes. It's got an eight point six on IMDb, which I feel like it should be higher. You know, it costs nineteen million dollars to make it. Grosses one hundred and thirty-one million, which is amazing. What wow. it, what is it about this movie that makes it the best? What is it that you know, it, it, I, let me let me ask you two questions. So, what is it that make that makes this movie great, and has it lost any of its luster in that twenty six years? Well, like I said, I I think it's more about it being a relationship movie. But beyond that, um, you have to remember that like this was like the third film. I, I believe to sweep the Oscars since um, a movie called It Happened One Night mm-hmm. and then also One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So this was a movie that came out of left field because horror slash thriller n- never really won anything before. Um and so I think that really put it on the map. It was one of the first movies of that genre back in that time to win Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay. And so I think it, it really took people by storm. Um, 
So I, I think it really, it was the first to win as a quote unquote horror movie, uh, a film. And, um, it wasn't the first to be nominated, by the way. Right. It was the first to win. Right. Because I believe there were a couple other movies like, I think, The Exorcist and, well, Jaws. But I don't know if you consider Jaws a horror movie, but I don't know. But um, the, those were nominated, but they never won. Right. Um, so I really think that that kind of set Silence of the Lambs up on a, a, a different pedestal you know, than any of the movies before it you say something really creative and really truthful and when you say this is a relationship movie because it's a, a and i don't want to give this I, I totally agree with you when you were saying it and, and i'm going to add to your theory in, in, in various parts of the segment but the relationship he has where we you go all the way to the end of the movie where he says he has no plans to call on her the world is much better with her in it he he's absolutely in, he's head over heels into hers. I don't know if it's a you know a a relationship in a sense that he likes her you know as far as you know a girlfriend or or, or that way. But I think he he's just as a person he's I don't want to say obsessed, but I just think he loves her. And I don't know how to I don't know how to classify or break down that love, but his respect and admiration and love for her is is the underlying theme here. I think am I am I looking at that correctly doug i i think you are because in the very in their very first exchanges he he starts probing her about her past her childhood um the slaughter of the lambs and he he says to her he says don't you lie to me because i'll be able to tell Mm. You tell me, you tell me the truth. And so it's this like symbi symbiotic sort of relationship where you give me something, I'll give you something. You give me something, I'll give you something. Right. And I believe there he even there is a line at the end of the movie where Hopkins says to her, um, sort of tongue in cheek, but he says, oh, people will say we're in love. <laughs> yes, you're right. You're right. And so I think that, I don't know, I, I'm speculating here, but I think that from uh, a Hannibal Lecter point of view, he becomes charmed by her because of her innocence. She, she's very direct. She's very truthful. She's very um, uh, not intimidated by him, but she st she attempts to stand up to him, even though you can tell she's um, she, she she cowers before him in a way. Um, she's vulnerable. That's the word I'm looking for. She's vulnerable. She's like, and I think he he enjoys. Uh, seeing her be that way because it's a ray of truth, you know, in a in a world of bullshit and and confinement. Right. And so hit her vulnerability basically is kind of a key that that unlocks him, that liberates him. You know. 
and, and he could smell her. Yeah, and know? there's and there's um, a scene. And it's the same one I think we're talking about, where he basically breaks it down. And he goes, "You're just a couple of generations from Poe White trash." And then she comes <laughs> back and says, "You see a lot, Doctor." You know, and it's just that's exactly what you're saying. And I'm going to tell you another point that supports what you're saying is when Mig. I have to I have to word this carefully. When Migs calls her a word that begins with a C and does something that's not really appropriate, um, Hannibal Lecter basically, when she leaves, uh, makes Migs take his own life. So uh, he, I think yeah. that he, when he disrespected uh, Agent Starling, I think Hannibal took that as how dare you? You know, this is my, this is my girl. This is my. How dare you do this to me? Am, am I? Is, is that an accurate perception? Yeah, this is my this is my lamb, and you, you know, you you disgraced her, and I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna put up with it, and um, and that's what I mean, like about the relationship aspect of the movie. I mean, it 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 really kind of the whole underlying theme of the movie to me was about that. It was a relationship about almost mutual respect because even though, okay, Hannibal Lecter is who he is and he, he fucking eats people. um, (laughs) She, she respects him and his mind and she needs him. That's the other um, operative word is need. They both need each other. Yes. And that was really well defined, um, probably in the screenplay. But I also think uh, hats off to Demi because he he created that relationship. Um, I'm sure he stimulated the actors to, um, you know, feed feed the fire of that relationship so that we could be drawn in instead of just kind of standing outside looking in we could be drawn in so yeah in the in the amazing world of directors i don't know how he could go from directing philadelphia to directing this they're so polar opposite but today i sent you a link in which it was a, it was a review of Cisco and Ebert old school old school review and Gene Siskel is the only mainstream reviewer to completely shit all over Silence of the Lambs. I, I am going to let the very talented actor take over for that. What is your take on what he said? Well, I responded to you in an email and I said, was Gene Siskel on drugs? <laughs> I think that was the first line of my email. <laughs> Because, like you said, I don't know if you watched the same movie we watched. Um, I, I don't know why he attacked the movie the way he did. Um, he also attempted in his review to compare it to another movie called Henry um, Portrait of a Serial Killer, which doesn't make any sense to me because they're very, very opposite polar movies there are polar opposite movies they just the only common denominator in those movies is that there is a serial killer or serial killers um in the movies and so for him to it's like you know 
uh, comparing apples and oranges to me. And then the most stunning aspect of Siskel's um, assessment of Silence of the Lambs is at the very end of the the um, critique, he says to Ebert that Anthony Hopkins' performance as Hannibal Lecter was over the top. <laughs> I mean, I nearly fell out of my chair when I heard that. How could how could anybody watch that subtle, intimate, soft-spoken performance, still performance, and call it over the top? I, I just, I, I didn't get it. No. Yes. I, I don't know. I don't know what Gene was taking at the time, but. Whatever it was, it was it was maybe twice or three times the dose he should have taken. Um, I, I think. Let me throw yeah. these two things at you and, and tell me which one you're more impressed with. Hopkins and Foster only share four scenes in the entire movie, or the fact that uh, he was nominated for only being on screen for 24 minutes? Since I don't really place a lot of stock or faith in the Academy Awards um, because I don't completely understand them. Mm. I don't understand who wins and why. Sometimes I agree with it. Sometimes I don't. I guess everybody does, but it just, it's such strange um, political arena. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to opt for uh, a, I think it's more impressive that these two characters and these two actors built this entire movie around only four scenes together when we've been talking about it being a relationship movie, um, you know, since we started the segment, I, I just, I think that's fairly incredible. Um, now that said, I gotta take my hat off to Hopkins because it's not in the uh, the Oscar world, as we know. It's not easy to win uh, an Academy as an antagonist. I mean, or to be even nominated. A couple have. Um, a handful have, but it's usually the sympathetic character that we're um, honoring at the Oscars, you know. So I don't know. I, and, and I, I got to say, I, I just think it's because whether he was on screen for 24 minutes or 14 minutes or, you know, two hours, I, I think that his performance was just, he just knocked it out of the ballpark, you know? Yeah. And you know, one of the things I love about this segment of breaking down a name, which you came up with, which I absolutely love is that I can hear you break down acting. How do you, I mean, what, what makes this movie click? What makes this movie work in your opinion? How does it, because you said it earlier, like this could have come off as so ridiculous and it didn't. What made it, legitimate Doug what makes this movie not a joke you got to remember this is 1991 right 
So we're still getting used to, or not getting used to, we're, we're being introduced to these guys who are doing these things. And F, the, um, the, the special faction of the FBI, what, they were just forming their analysis of these characters you know these these guys who were doing this back then and so i think part of the brilliance of silence of the lambs was that it 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 dove off of that like it 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 dove off of it um to explore for for almost the first time the why like the how could they do this why could they do this what goes on in a serial killer's mind and i think that was part of the brilliance of the movie is that you know the jodie foster character clarice is probing the mind of a serial killer to learn about a serial killer um as we as a, as a society and a community i mean we still do to an extent let's let's face it we don't understand these guys or these people who do this um but i think for the first time we were exploring the whys and wherefores and you have to remember too like again 1991 i mean now um you know all of this stuff that that we're living with now it's it, it, it's commonality now back then it, it wasn't it was something brand new and so this particular serial killer who's creating female skin suits <laughs> you know to hide his manhood yeah was something unbelievable i mean you know like we couldn't wrap ourselves around that um so i think that was part of it too is that we were being introduced back in 1991 to a lot of different variables in our society that we're more apt to be familiar with now than we were way back then yeah, I, I agree, Doug. And, and and from a novice point of view, and, and you can hammer this point home because of your expertise in acting, um, I really think Foster and Hopkins make each other better. You know, they make each other better in many ways in the Green Mile, how your character made other characters better. Um, what is your take on that? I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that, you know, that's the testament of a really good actor is not just their performance, but how much they can give to the other actor and how much they can provoke that other actor to respond. And, um, it's pretty amazing. You know, when you're, when you're acting with someone who's giving back, um, you can't help, but respond respond emotionally to them mm. and well said that's I'm, a great I'm quote think, great quote I'm, 
I'm thinking, you know, too, like, I honestly, I haven't seen the movie in a while. I, I was, I was tempted to watch it before our sequence today, but I, I, I didn't get around to it. I, I, I watched a few things online on YouTube, a couple scenes, and there was one, there was the one scene where Jodie Foster, I mean, you can see it in her eyes. I mean, she's, 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 she's feeling emotion mm. when he, when he brings up the lambs and, um, and her, and her past. And that's that quote you said, I, I believe that you, you see a lot, uh, doctor, she mm. says, and man, that's so powerful because, um, I believe in that moment, those two actors were giving 110% to each other. And um, it's a beautiful thing to watch when it works. Do you think, in a character point of view, that that Hannibal Lecter was taking pleasure in her suffering? How does, is, is it just the nature of his brain? Why would he want to hear her suffering when it came to those lambs and how she felt? You know, um... What what is it? Is it is it just who he is and the kind of person he is? Why would he need to hear about her suffering? If you kind of catch my drift. Well, I grew up Catholic, right? So I'm used to going. I was used to going to confession. I was an altar boy, and I we we learned in uh, being Catholics that you go to the priest to confess your sins. And that was the only way that God could hear um, your pain, your your humanity, your sins. And it, it just, I don't know why I just got that image that, like, in a way, I don't think it was Hannibal Lecter being sadistic or getting pleasure in um, drawing the, the pain out of her. I think he wanted a confession. And I think it was almost a release to Clarice to to confess. Who who knows if anybody ever even asked her this stuff before. Right. You know, and and here was a moment where she's in the confessional, you know, but behind the, the plexiglass cage with this person who appears to know more about her than than she than she does and so when he draws it out of her i think it's more of a confessional it's more of a, a purging for her and um and a release for him when he gets the truth because he's hungry for the truth um so that that's the kind of image I had was priest in Hannibal Lecter, the priest in a confessional with uh, Clarice confessing um, her truth to him. Every so time, he, every so time she can be released, you know. Yeah, every time we speak, you say something that I never see, but the way you phrase it, that totally makes sense to me. That completely makes. 100% dead on sense. And the way you phrase that, 
it's it's almost like the psychiatrist coming through in him. You know, I mean, he at the end of the day, that's what he is. But you know, a doctor and and but but I, I totally agree with that. But I have to say, in general, just from from a fan's point of view, when I watch both of these actors doing their thing, Foster and Hopkins, I never think I'm watching Jodie Foster. I never think I'm watching Anthony Hopkins. I'm always invested in Clarice, and I'm always invested in Hannibal Lecter. I never see, I see the character and not the actor, and that's the sign of a great, great uh, movie and role. I I agree. The FBI, when they saw this movie, they were very pleased with you know how it was portrayed. They, they agreed with everything that went down. But the one thing they said, and I, I, I doubt this. I, I really feel like they're incorrect with this. They said they would never send an agent in alone because she goes in alone into Buffalo Bill's house. And, you know, she's without backup. She goes in there into that creepy-ass house where he then flips down the, the night vision goggles, you know. Um I don't know. What's your take on that? You think, I got to believe FBI agents go into dangerous situations alone all the time. That's a good question. I, I, I don't really know the answer to that. You know, I I don't know what their protocol is in the FBI. Um, I do know two things, though. One is, at times, look, whether that was a realistic moment or not, at times in a movie, you take concessions or you make concessions and you and the audience accepts it because we we want to go there i mean that's you know if she was there with other people uh other fbi agents it wouldn't be the same scene um so you know in a way at times you, you got to get away from what really would happen i mean because we're not watching a documentary we're watching a movie now i know they want to stick as close as possible when you're making a movie about police protocol or military protocol or whatever but um i can't honestly remember if she went there on her own accord or if she was sent there by the FBI. Yeah, she followed a lead on her own. The FBI is is wrong about the sequence because if she went on her own accord, if she felt she needed to go alone, if she deceived, you know, the unit, the FBI, the other FBI agents, then, you know, they didn't send her there alone. Right. I, I can't honestly remember one way or the other. But I, think I think that's what I it was. Think I think, think right. yeah. yeah. And let me ask you, there's a great scene where Hannibal Lecter has sniffed this out completely, where they want they want his help in finding the congresswoman's uh, daughter, and they offer him like a <laughs> a beach on an animal testing island where they test animals. You know, <laughs> so he sniffs this out through and through, like, and he's always dropping hints to her along the to Clarice along the way where he's always steering her straight. But I guess in a long-winded way, is there a scene in this movie that I mean for me it's it's the end is unbelievable, but is there a scene in this movie that you're like that is so impeccably done it's unbel- it's it's obnoxious. Is there one scene for you Doug that's just it breaks it down to like holy shit. Yeah. Um it's that 
seen um, <laughs> it's that amazing classical piece. You know, H- Howard Shore was the composer on this movie. I thought he did an impeccable job as yeah. well. But um, it's when Hannibal Lecter is waiting in his cage for his meal. <laughs> and he's waiting to dispatch of the two guards. And it's so beautifully orchestrated because he's just, um, again, a a very still composed um, performance by Hopkins. But he's just waiting and listening to this beautiful classical music. Um, And he's biding his time. And he's waiting and waiting, and he draws them in like a like a spider drawing in the flies, and then slaughters them. <laughs> and to the music, by the way, and it's and he does it in such a way that he's almost like the he's he's playing an instrument with that uh, piece of whatever the hell he's cutting them up with, he pulls a, a nail out of his mouth or something, isn't it? Like, a, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and something. And that to me was because there's very little dialogue. There's just the music, just Hopkins, just Hannibal Lecter waiting closing his eyes moving to the music and we know something really really horrific is about to happen (laughs) and ultimately does to me that kind of that was the nut of the movie that really captured my uh, utmost attention you said Uh, waiting for dinner which i which i found ironic because i don't think it was the plate that they brought over to him i think his his dinner was um Maybe a, a face or two, but you know it's, just, it's <laughs> yeah. It's, ultimately, it was yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the same way at the end of the movie where he's talking, and, and this is probably my favorite movie when he calls her to tell her, you know what, you're okay. Don't worry about. It. I'm not coming after you. I I love you. You're you're fine. Yeah. But he said, you know, I'm having an old friend for dinner. I feel like it's kind of the same type of you know uh, sentiment. <laughs> you know, um, what I wanted to ask you is, um, so. Who's more frightening, Buffalo Bill or um, Hannibal Lecter? I know it sounds like a ridiculous question, but I don't know. Like, I feel like Buffalo Bill is a scary guy or a scary person. What what do you think? Wow, that's another good question. I mean, it depends on your perspective, I guess, because if if you're looking at just, if you're looking at just a monster, I think we're looking at Buffalo Bill. And the, the reason I'm saying monster is only because the, it, what he's compelled to do is coming out of an impulse. It's animalistic almost. Right. It, 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 it's out of control. Um, he can't help himself. He's got to kill and, and um, torment and um to 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 get you know what he wants so in a way he's out of control and 
I guess if you're more fearful of someone in that state of mind, then he, he's he's you know the more horrific character. Hannibal Lecter is it's it's all um, intellect. It's all planned. It's succinct. It's articulate. It's thought out. It's patient. So when you see uh, Hopkins for the first time um, in that role, yes, he's still, yes, he's speaking in a calm voice, but you can see the shark beneath his eyes going back and forth, back and forth, because we know at some point in time, um, if you trust this man too much, you're going to be in trouble. So I don't know. It's a good question. It depends on who you're more frightened by. Are you frightened by the out-of-control beast? Or are you frightened by the calculating um, person who will take the time of eternity until he can eat your face you know? <laughs> yeah that's that's well said that's well said doug and let me say that you know along those interesting tidbit lines you know michelle pfeiffer and meg ryan turned down the role of clarice because they felt it was too disturbing i gotta say i i don't i don't want to say ever disrespect anybody but if you're an actor and i've had a couple actors say this to me i'll do any role like if it's acting and it's legitimate, I'm going to do it. What's your take on that? As far as your your opinion on what you know, them turning it down for being disturbing, and accepting roles that may not be the most favorable roles or or ideal roles for you. Well, I got to say, first of all, you, I mean, they're probably regretting their decisions. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> to this day yep. but um you gotta respect them because um i i've read i've read scripts where i've read the role they're want they're considering me for and first of all i've got to like the story i've got to like the script secondly i've got to jack into the character so if it's a character that I, I, I'm, I, I can't, oh, it's hard to explain. It, it's got to jump off the page and into my heart. Right. So that if the character feels on the page, like it, it doesn't have any redeeming value, if it doesn't touch me in some way, I'm going to turn it down. Um, I was asked, uh, I won't mention the show, but, um, I was asked to play a role recently on a show and it was of a child molester, um, a pedophile. And I read the script and there was absolutely no redeeming aspect that I could bring to this character, that that I could lend any empathy to. It was just a monster. I mean, 
I don't want to play a role like that. Right. I, I if I'm going to play um, in a movie that's quote unquote disturbing, or if I'm going to play a character that's quote unquote disturbing, like Percy in the Green Mile, for example, I've got a I got to feel for this character. I got to humanize this character and I have to believe in the story, in the script. And so I don't know what they read when they read, when they turned down the role of Clarice, when they read Silence of the Lambs, but um, perhaps there was something in it that just, I mean, again, for its time, 1991, I guess it was, and it is considerably still somewhat disturbing, especially the, uh, the, the Buffalo Bill scenes with the girl down in the pit and that, that whole, that whole sequence, that whole scenario, maybe they had a gut reaction about that. I'm not sure. Yeah, um, you know, I I wonder, you you and I talked off the air about, you know, some pretty frightening movies. I wonder what happened if, like, Saw would have come out in 91, or Human Human Centipede would have come out in 91. There there would have been, like, mass puking. Uh, (laughs) You know, like, I don't know, like, what? I I don't know. I I guess the sign of the times, but I have two major questions I want to ask you, and then, um, you know, we'll we'll kind of wrap things up. And I talked to you about this a little bit. The male cops stare at her when she comes into the funeral home, you know, to kind of look at the body. Like, like you know, you're a female. What are you doing here? Also a sign maybe of 1991. Um, Jodie Foster's role, I thought for me, I she was so ballsy and kick-ass in that scene. I don't know. Like, that's the difference between a top-shelf actor and an actor that's good. And I thought she... Hit a home run with that. I thought, and I thought Jonathan Demi with that scene was phenomenal. I, 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 you know the scene I'm talking about where she goes into, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. I, I gotta tell you, that's one of the most powerful scenes in a movie I've ever seen because all the male cops are looking at her like, "You're a female. What the hell are you doing here?" <laughs> yeah, you know, not knowing that she has, she is probably mentally superior to most of them, and she's been having an ongoing dialogue with arguably the most insane man on the planet. Right. So I guess my, my question to you is, what are your thoughts on that scene and in general? No, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think, you know, well, first of all, Jodie Foster is always, in my opinion, for the most part, she's made some very strong choices in the movies that she's made, directed, acted in. You know, and she's she's an extremely powerful woman. I mean, she carries the torch uh, for feminism in many ways. And so I think maybe, I don't know, I'm just speculating, but back then in 91, when she was given the opportunity to play a character that would be in a world of you know, a male dominated world, um, you know, with, of misogyny and, you know, looking down upon women and not being as smart as men necessarily, um, as intelligent or whatever, maybe Jody 
thought it was a great opportunity to show the opposite of that and to fight against it. Um, and again, I'm speculating. I can't get into her mind or speak for her, but maybe that was part of what compelled her to take the role as well. And um, what led those other actresses astray, like or, or away, um, not to to jump at the chance. Maybe Jody saw something in Clarice that was powerful. Right. Uh, it was symbolic at the time, and um, and and needed to, you know, grab the bull by the horns and, you know, turn it upside down a little bit. So you and I are of the same belief that we both love this movie. We both agree it's a relationship movie. It's not so much a horror movie. It's about a man who, or a psychopath that completely loves this woman and has a relationship with her. So I loved Red Dragon. I thought it was phenomenal. How do you feel about, and Manhunter was great as well, how do you feel about either the prequel or the movies after it? Do you feel they're as good, unnecessary... You know, there was the Hannibal movie where Ray Liotta's eating his own brain. Uh, you know, it, there's some weird other movies that, you know, are, are either, like I said, a prequel or a sequel. What's your take on those, Doug? I liked Red Dragon a lot. I, I was not wild at all about Hannibal. Right. I, I thought Hannibal was a bit gratuitous, over the top. It, it didn't... It, it didn't reel me in the way Silence of the Lambs did. Um, I, I didn't get it. I really didn't. I, I didn't. I mean, I understood it from a producerial point of view. I mean, they wanted to do a sequel to Silence of the Lambs, and you know, because it was so popular. But no, it just didn't. It just didn't do it for me. It didn't have that same. Um, effect, you know, and so, uh, so yeah, I so, wasn't wild about it. So you're okay with Red Dragon, not so high on Hannibal. Yeah, yeah, me I too. I that. agree. I totally yeah. agree. And let me let me ask you. So John Carpenter said that you know he wished in the first movie, the one we're talking about, you know, Silence of the Lambs, that they kind of focused more on Hannibal Lecter, and I felt that they did that in Hannibal, and it was a tremendous flop. Like so, I think if John Carpenter did direct a movie, it would have looked a lot like Hannibal. <laughs> you might be right. You know, yeah. um, but I don't know. I just think this is one of those movies that will last for eternity. Um, I, I just cannot imagine this movie losing significance. I mean, people have put this movie at the top of virtually every list, and like a fine wine, Doug, this movie will get better with 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 age. Is there anything you wanted to add in a final uh, final word here? Well, Gene Siskel would disagree with you. <laughs> <laughs> he, w- he would disagree with me, absolutely. <laughs> um, no, no final words other, other than I, did, I enjoyed this very much, and I, uh, I appreciate the opportunity, and I look forward to breaking down some more... Um, great movies or not so great movies uh, in the future with you on the show yeah you know i think the world of you as a friend and an iconic actor you know this has been the first installment i gotta ask you one more thing because we had a conversation off the air 
And I loved what you had to say. We were talking about horror movies in general. And we both saw it. And I I just want people to hear why you think it was special. Like, if you don't mind me asking you this, because I you were not expecting this. I'm just throwing this at you. What did it for you and for it? Why was it so special for you? Well, you're talking about the remake, of the course. remake, the, yeah, the Stephen King yeah. remake that just came out. Yes, yes, yep. Yeah. Um, well, like I told you off the air, I was very reticent to see the remake of it because I'm not, generally speaking, I'm not a huge fan of remakes. I, I don't. I, I want Hollywood to be original, <laughs> and. Um, it's very difficult to be original, and that's why there are so many uh, remakes of classic movies. Um, and so I had fond memories of the, the old It <laughs> with, uh, with Tim Curry as the clown. And um, uh, I, I, I didn't really – I didn't want to see a cheesy remake of the movie. And I was reeled in to go see it and um, reluctantly went and was pleasantly surprised. And I, it, it, it was pretty amazing. Um, it, the acting, the, the kids in it were brilliant. It scared me. <laughs> um, it was entertaining and engrossing, and also, I liked how you put it. Um, you said it It seemed more like a stand-by-me on steroids <laughs> yeah. versus uh, a horror movie. Right. Um, even though it was a horror movie, um, it, it really was more about these boys and their relationship with the girl and, mm. and themselves, their, their, their little niche um their club um and i really i don't know I, whoever wrote the script i I, sh- I don't know who it is i'm i, I should know I, I'm, I'm gonna google <laughs> um but whoever adapted this version is hats off to them yeah. because they did an amazing job at keeping the essence of Stephen King's original, but also expounding upon it in a way that really drew you in because it's so bittersweet. It's it's not, you know, just a boo, scare you kind of movie. It's just, even though the clown is sinister as hell, <laughs> um, it, it, it brings you to tears at times and also makes you reminiscent of your childhood and how you were back then and just, you know, your first love and all that stuff. It yeah. just really, really captured a lot. I, I, I was really, I was impressed. I think horror, I mean, horror has, horror is never going to go away. I mean, it's like 24 seven now, you know, it, it used to be, you know, around Halloween, the horror movies would come out now. They're like two a month. Right. (laughs) Um, But the ones that grab me are the ones that have, you know, some redeeming quality to them. 
and it's not just hack them up. I mean, some of those can be fun if you just, you know, want to go first, like on a roller coaster ride or whatever. But right. like, like I really like Don't Breathe. Now, that was scary. That movie scared the piss out of me. <laughs> but I just thought the concept was so original and it, it, it kind of like threw you back and forth because, you know, you were you were with the kids who were invading and then you kind of felt bad for the guy because he's blind. And, and then all of a sudden it turns and, I mean, it just took so many twists and turns and I, I kind of just felt like for a horror movie of that kind – um, it, it it did its job really well because it it reeled you in. It, it felt original and it kind of had a message underneath, you know. So I'm I'm more attracted to those kind of horror films than the slasher ones. N- now that I just said that, <laughs> now I'm going to contradict. Uh oh, <laughs> because I loved the Devil's Rejects. Oh, Doug, this might be the first thing we've ever disagreed on. I've had okay. two, I've, oh, but but no, but to your credit, I've had two people on my show talk about Rob Zombie, and they both love him. I cannot take it. Like he drives me bananas with I, you know more than I do. Like I had a guest on earlier that loved Rob Zombie. What is it about that movie? Because it's got a huge cult following. So I'm missing something. Because okay. yeah. Okay, well, here we go. This is going to be another sequence down the line <laughs> for breaking down because yeah. um, this is because it'll be fun. It'll be fun to, for you and I to disagree on a movie and and bring our reasons to the table. You know why we liked or didn't like it. Absolutely. Um, I I can't. I, I, let, let's back it into it now. Let's save that for a future okay. episode. But okay. I, all I can say is. I, for some twisted reason, even though I I told you a thousand times I, I can't stand watching movies about people being tortured and uh, slaughtered for no reason whatsoever. There was something, there was some uh, nucleus about this movie that just took me for a ride. I, I don't know why. His name is Doug Hutchison. He is a friend. He is a iconic actor. This has been the first installment of Breaking Down. Uh, we've broken down uh, Silence of the Lambs. We hope you enjoyed it. Doug, thank you so much for, for coming on with me today. Uh, thanks for having me, Derek. I, I look forward to the future and more Breaking Downs. And happy Friday the 13th to everybody. And that was the first installment of Breaking Down. And I am so ecstatic with how that went. That was, I could not have hoped for any better. That was phenomenal. And to listen to Doug's insights, his opinions, it's just, he's just such a great guy to converse with, you know? And it just so happens that, you know, he's a phenomenal actor. And I love movies. And this has been our first installment of Breaking Down. We will be back in a few weeks with another movie from one of many genres we're going to choose from. Thank you for listening. We'll talk soon. 